Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 133, recorded on September 1st, 2021. GCP serverless functions, now with servers. Good evening, Jonathan and Peter. How's it going? Great, Justin. How are you? Going well. Good. Uh, Ryan, you know, decided to go join the three-day weekend a little early, so we uh, he's not going to join us tonight due to uh, work uh, commitments, but, uh, you know, that happens sometimes here, so we'll do without him. Just means that there's more points for you and I on the lightning round. Yeah, somebody tells me his weekend did not start early. Yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, there, we have some sort of follow-up uh, and or general news, depending on how long you listen to the show. So we, uh, we last year we talked about Mer- uh, Docker selling their enterprise business to Mirantis. And then we talked about Docker changing the terms of their free repos and what that meant to you and how that was going to cost you more money. And now I feel they've gone full Oracle <laughs> with the announcement that they are now going to force enterprise customers to sign up for a paid plan to use its popular desktop application as of August 31st, 2021, which also happens to be the day they announced this. So there's no warning for you. <laughs> uh, and if you are a professional Docker desktop customer that works for a company with more than 250 employees or has over $10 million in revenue, you have until January 31st, 2022, sign up for a paid subscription to keep using the app. Uh, you know, I just, it's crappy. It's a, it's a bad scenario. So now this thing I didn't budget for, I didn't know about, and now to pay for as an extortion racket, like, you know, clearly their lawyers came from Oracle. That's all this, that's all it says to me. Uh, it will apparently though remain free to use for some smaller businesses, personal use, education, and non-commercial open source projects, which the company says accounts for half of its current customer base. So this is just their reason to audit you at the end of the day and then make you pay a lot of money. Uh, so that overall, this is not great. This is all led by CEO Scott Johnson, who's he's, as he's trying to plot the turnaround of Docker uh, after they sold that business to Mirantis, like I mentioned. Uh, the new pricing plans replace the free pro team and large with the new personal pro team and business plans all available to you today to go sign up for and pay them a lot of money, unfortunately. Well, I got to say, I agree with your assessment of pulling the carpet out is is rough when people have already done their budgets for the year. However, if they don't, bring in enough money to pay their staff and stay afloat, then the tool's going to go away either way. So got to do something to make some money. Well, I mean, clearly the they're not making enough money from the repos that they change yep. the licensing terms on. So now they're they're going after the next thing, which is this, you know, this software. And I, you know, I think it's it's fair to ask for donations. It's fair to say, hey, if this adds value to you, you know, you have an option to pay for something. Uh, but you know, this just feels it feels dirty. I don't like it. Yeah. Or just give enough heads up. What about having to shareware anyway? <laughs> Shareware was always crippleware. I used to buy that stuff in college and I would get so excited about the names and then I'd stick that floppy disk in my computer and it was awful. The only good thing about it was when uh, Wolfenstein 3D gave like three free levels. That was the best thing I ever got yeah. in Shareware. You remember the, you used to get the CDs, the gamer CDs that have all the demos on all of the, you know, like a full CD-ROM of demos every, t- every week. That was, that was fun. But yeah, they're all shareware garbage for the most part. <laughs> so uh, occasionally you get like a cool skin for a game you played or something. But uh, this is back when skins were, you know, 8 bit objects in 3D, yeah. which were terrible. So you could sort of look like a thing, but it didn't really look like it. Now you have, you have Fortnite and it looks like, wow, that actually looks exactly like the thing for the movie. So it's just amazing the technology leaps you've done. But we still pay uh, for all that stuff, unfortunately. It's not free. Not free. Any alternatives to Duck a Desktop? 
Uh, so, you know, I did do some some looking around at this, and the the best path that seemed, uh, I saw a couple of blog posts mention was Minikube um, is kind of the the way to go. Um, someone also mentioned Podman. Uh, there's a couple of others as well that potentially have play. But, you know, the thing is Docker Compose, uh, those type of things, those are all very Docker-specific today, um, which you can do in Minikube, but you're, now you're just doing Kubernetes configuration. You're not doing Docker Compose, and that's a different, different syntax, a different YAML, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's hard to see that they're going to be a successful business going forwards, really. I, I can imagine three to six months we'll be reporting that they're no longer in business or, or something. I, just, and I can't see how gouging people in this way is sustainable when, I mean, there's, there's still plenty of open source tools out there. Somebody will come along and say, hey, but we'll do this for free while they still have some kind of momentum or inspiration to build a free tool before they change their minds later again, I guess. it's They're, they're just going to lose through, through attrition their customer base. Myself, you know, long term, I think you're right. I think you you deteriorate the business. I think in the short term, you probably just juiced your revenue dramatically because no customer is going to be able to move off a Docker desktop this quickly. And if it's a licensing risk, they're not going to take that risk. Is most of the, most of the situation. Um, you know, even Ryan and I were talking about it, you know, the other day before the podcast, and he was saying, you know, <laughs> he doesn't have the budget for it, but he really wants it. And I'm like, well, I don't know how you have a choice because. Just because you don't want to use, you know, you could use something else doesn't mean the rest of your developers can or the rest of your teams can. And I don't know how you get out of this without, you know, potentially having either a development impact, which is expensive for your organization, or you just pay the license fee. All right. Well, enough about Docker and their terrible choices. Hopefully someone buys them, like IBM or somebody. They just, you know, do the right thing. <laughs> That's what I hope. Well, I, although IBM doing the right thing is a bit of a oxymoron, I guess. <laughs> yeah, we used to say that about Microsoft. Yeah, that's true. We you never know. Because you know Amazon will buy them, of course. But uh, Amazon has a bunch of new news things for us this week, uh, as usual. Uh, first up is Amazon VPC routing enhancements. Uh, so back in 2019, we were super excited when they announced the bump-in-the-wire technology to view traffic ingressing your EC2 instances uh, to basically replay that traffic to an ENI. Uh, and that was great for north-south traffic, which goes basically from the internet to a web server to a database server, and you're crossing subnets. Uh, but if you're talking to multiple boxes inside of a subnet or east-west traffic, as we call it, uh, you could not do that. Uh, and so that was due to problems with routing. And in the routing table, there can't be more than a, one specific way to route the traffic uh, via the default route. And so since the subnet's all in the same route, they're all in the same default gateway. And so how do you route traffic uh, through that to get basically filtered and duplicated? And so that was a problem. Amazon, uh, though, has now solved this restriction, which I would love to know the math on how they did that. <laughs> and the routes in the routing table can have routes more specific than the default local route and use these more specific routes to send all your traffic to a dedicated appliance or service to inspect, analyze, or filter all traffic flowing between two subnets by east-west traffic. Uh, you can also chain applica- appliances to have more than one type of analysis. For example, you can ha- first filter your traffic through a firewall, either an AWS one or a third party, then send that traffic to an IDS IPS device, and then finally perform deep packet inspection uh, at a third device all through this chain. Uh, something to note, though, the network interface or service endpoint you are sending traffic to must be in a dedicated subnet. It cannot be in the source or destination subnet of your traffic. Uh, and each subnet will, of course, consume a block of IP addresses. Uh, and the appliances secure must have a rule accepting incoming traffic on the desired port, obviously. Mm, it's pretty interesting. I, I, I would love to have a really good deep dive on how the implementation of VPC networking has changed over the years. I mean, things like this were must have been fundamental, fundamentally sort of impossible because of the way they designed VPC. Those those routes between subnets were always implicit routes, and so they there must have been some huge changes to to enable all this all these security features on the back end. But 
just think uh, what, what, what a vector for attack now is to deploy a man in the middle box in somebody's VPC to gather all their data. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's definitely a, a different path. Add to the list of uh, on my day at the door uh, <laughs> triggers. Yeah, you know the, the interesting yeah. thing is, you know, we heard a few years ago that they had moved most of their network devices to their own silicone and their own uh, graviton-based ARM chips. Uh, so, I mean, having the full flexibility of owning the entire stack uh, at the routing layer uh, and at the physical layer allows them to have a lot more flexibility than most people can. But I, I assume that's where this magic has kind of come into be for them for all the nitro enhancements as well as many of the other bump-in-the-wire capabilities, is all from that that introduction to ARM processing and their switches. Yep. It's going to make the security guys very happy. Yeah, make the IDS IPS providers probably pretty happy. Tools are going to be a lot easier to use. It probably means, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, usually get these announcements six months before AWS actually release their own IDS IPS solutions. So <laughs> they'll, give the, they'll give their competition a, a good six-month uh, runway to test the, the new networking stack, and then they'll put them out of business with their own implementation. <laughs> oh, that's the past that. Yeah, <laughs> now the bad news. <laughs> uh, Amazon IDS. <laughs> yep. Reinvent prediction, maybe. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, uh, Peter, if I were to ask you uh, what your biggest complaint or pain point of cloud formation would be, do you have an answer for that? Yes. Okay. I do. In, in fact, I don't just have an answer. I have, to this day, confirmation stacks in our original, some of our original sandbox accounts that failed to spin up and then began rolling back. And then the rollback failed. And so it's just there forever. So rollback failed, can't move forward, can't move back. Versus, and that's one of the big things that got us to move to, uh, to use Terraform. It was just so much easier where you'd fail, stop, and then you can go tweak stuff and then retry and, and pick up where you left off. So, I do have to say that's a pretty impressive programming that you not only failed on the deploy, but also failed on the rollback. It's, yeah. it's a testament to your programming attitude. <laughs> yes. You know, if it was real code and not just JSON, I would blame me, but I blame, I fully do not blame me. That's true. I, you know, it's, it's definitely a JSON problem for sure. It's a common missing somewhere. You just don't know where because it's JSON. I mean, it's not code. It's a cloud formation problem to look at my configuration, tell me, yeah, sure, I could totally spin that up and then try and be like, oh yeah, this doesn't work at all. Let me just roll it back. And then be like, oh yeah, the thing I just created for you, I can't, I can't roll back. That was pathetic. How about you, Jonathan? Do you have a, a, your biggest pain point in CloudFormation? It's, I mean, it's always been debugging, failing stacks on, on build, whether, it, whether it's something wrong with a EC2 instance image or something in the user data or something like that. It's always been a chore to manage to catch an instance just in time, just as also scaling sports it up and deployed it, and it, it fails the health check, and you've got to take it out of the rotation and log in quickly and grab the logs before the whole thing gets torn down again. So, yeah, it's not, it's not been the most friendly to, to, uh, to troubleshoot. Yeah. And this is all a trick because I know that this is the number one complaint of all CloudFormation <laughs> for all users because every person who's ever done CloudFormation who I've ever talked to has this complaint. And after years of waiting and suffering in the market, Amazon is fixing this problem for both of you and myself Yay. and Ryan as well. <laughs> uh, and, you know, knocking off those old PFRs is just a really nice thing at the end of the day. Uh, but basically, this allows you to disable the automatic rollback when CloudFormation fails keep the resources successfully created or updated before the error occurred, and retry stack operations from the point of failure. This way, you can now quickly iterate to fix intermediate errors and greatly reduce the time to required to test a CloudFormation template in a dev environment. Uh, 
you know, my most common experience with this was dealing with cloud formation. And so not only do you have the rollback, but it's a 30 minute roll forward and a 30 minute rollback. So, yeah. you know, being able to just pause and say, okay, what happened? What went wrong? Or, you know, in the other scenarios, you know, you, you spun up something that's taking a long time, like an RDS database. Uh, and then somehow you, you defeat the cloud formation timeout for the next step. And then it basically fails your entire stack. And it's like, well, I just needed to wait for the RDS. And now that it's up, I could just retry, but that wasn't a capability before. Uh, so this is super nice and not required to roll back your entire cloud formation. Uh, super nice or delete the entire stack. Uh, you know, thank you, Amazon. I appreciate this one. <laughs> That's really funny. I can simplify so many of my old cloud formation templates now where I had I kind of had counters in there. So I'll say like deploy to step one or deploy to step two and sort of do the first deployment and it uses conditional resources to just do a few things. And if it works, you do an update and you say, okay, now do the next bit, now do the next bit. So that's, yeah, awesome. <laughs> yeah. If only I use CloudFormation anymore. And so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is a little late when you consider like, oh, well, you've already pushed us a CDK and then you know, half the world's moved to Terraform or Pulumi uh, because of your your idiosyncrasies of these CloudFormation things. So, you know, if you had done this five years ago, Terraform might not be as big as it is right now. And Pulumi might not even exist as a company. Yeah. But, uh, you know, here we are and we all have better solutions that we all like. Although, Jonathan's still a CloudFormation purist at heart. I do. I do. I do like CloudFormation. Much as we try to teach you Terraform, you're always like, oh, CloudFormation. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you're using Textract uh, to take data out of text documents, uh, you now get a 32% price reduction in eight AWS regions and, more importantly, and why we're talking about it, up to 50% reduction in asynchronous job processing times. Uh, previously, there were different tiers for detect document text, or OCR, and analyze documents to pull the forms and tables out in every region. And so the complexity of managing your costs and predictability of that cost was very difficult. And so now they all be billed at the same rate, no matter the region. Uh, and this will save you anywhere from 9 to 32% reduction uh, in your APA pricing, unless, of course, you're already in the cheapest region. And then you got no benefit of this. So sorry for you. Uh, and then that asynchronous reduction in processing for end-to-end -end job processing time uh, you can invoke async on multi-paged documents, and based on customer feedback, they have made enhancements to reduce that end-to-end -end latency by 50%. And with a lower processing time, the faster customers are able to process their documents, achieve scale, and improve their overall productivity, which is quite nice. So, TextTrack, a couple good upgrades there. Yeah, faster, cheaper. Two of the three. I just think about all the companies who were, you know, before Google got into the space, before AWS got into space, were trying to build their own ML models for document recognition. And, you know, how far they are versus how far Amazon and Google are in Asia. <laughs> and it's like, well, this is the reason why, you know, using your cloud vendor might be the better choice. Yeah. Because they're not even getting this kind of scale and or price reduction for anything they're doing on top of ML. You think they're related announcements? Or do you think they've, they've chosen to reduce costs because they've been able to reduce their own costs to run the service? And also that enabled them to maybe increase kind of the, the, uh, the parallelization of the async jobs or something. I don't know. It's... I, it does seem like they they must be related somehow, but I'm sure this is one of those under the hood things you'd have to understand <laughs> mm -hmm. that you know we just don't know. But you know the, the fact that they're announcing them together, you know, they did seem somewhat on the surface to be unrelated. But yeah, if you you know if you don't now need to worry about OCR versus uh, form or table extraction, and you can use the same processors or the same compute to do both functions without a lot of additional work, you can now do more async jobs, and so it kind of works out together, where they can now provide you faster processing as well as faster processing for themselves. Yeah, I wonder how many more price cuts, or even if this price cut is is related to um, graviton-based savings, you know, lower power, cheaper mm -hmm. silicon. That would be my guess. <laughs> if I were to guess on why there's a price cut, it's it's mostly most of the services that are getting price cuts these are moving to graviton in a big yeah. way. 
Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pub possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, if you like uh, CloudWatch and you like widgets on your CloudWatch dashboards, uh, you can now build custom widgets, which is a new feature that enables you to gain operational visibility and agility by customizing the content of your CloudWatch dashboard, using, uh, such as adding visualizations, displaying information from multiple data sources, or adding controls like buttons to take remediation steps. Uh, custom widgets can help you correlate trends over time and spot issues more easily by displaying related data from different sources side by side on CloudWatch dashboards. Button, just delete offending resource. That'd be nice. Kill it. (laughs) (laughs) Then, of course, Amazon heard last week that Azure uh, was letting you resize your prefix list, uh, you know, without having to undo peering. And so Amazon said, we can do that too. And they are now announcing for you the ability to resize your prefix list. Uh, VPCs now allow you to resize your prefix list, making it easier to manage your security and routing behavior as your network grows. Of course, prefix lists allow you to group multiple CIDR blocks into a single object and use it as a reference for your network configuration. Uh, you can then share the prefix list with other AWS accounts like a resource access manager or use it to configure VPC route tables, security groups, and transit gateway route tables. Uh, prior to this, the size of the prefix list or the amount of ciders it could contain was fixed at the time of creation, meaning that if you mess up then, you're doomed forever. It's a useful feature that they added, but, but what a weird constraint that, they, that you could modify it once it was already in, uh, in production. It's always been useful for sharing public NAS addresses and things like this between like, services that have its multi-account strategy. Uh, yeah, so I think the way you, I think this is one of those things where you would create a new one and then delete the old one. Mm. Um, but now that being able to modify one, you don't have to go through that create delete step and read all your references and all your publishing and all the other other gotchas with it. So, you know, there's there's a lot of those patterns though in Amazon world where you know your your way to change something is delete it first and then create a new one. Um, you know, which is fine if you're not dealing with stateful data, but you know, when you need data that needs to retain over time, it's a bit problematic. Uh, but you know, then Amazon eventually gets you uh, the ability to update versus just delete or create. Yeah, you it, all the magic. It, I think it would be interesting to to see. Uh, I, mean, I, I don't care what the IPs are that I'm sharing between this account and that account. I just want to share access between between you know, account A and account B. So let me kind of abstract that a little bit and say, allow networking between these services, regardless of what the public IPs are. I don't care. I don't care if it's IPv4 or IPv6. Well, I mean, that's what you could have in in the you know all the fabric stuff we're talking about these yeah. days, and and mesh networking is just like I just it's just an abstraction. I want to be able to basically call you know web app basically then equals these these prefixes, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. Mm-hmm. And just think about it as the name of the application, the name of the service, not the name of the prefix. Getting closer, closer every day. Yeah. Speaking of things that are getting closer, uh, Manage Grafana is now generally available. So if you've uh, been using the new managed Grafana services, uh, it is now publicly uh, generally available, so you don't have to request access to the private beta or any of those crazy things anymore. And in addition to releasing a general available, uh, they gave us a bunch of new features, including the new upgraded uh, V8 version, offers a new data sources, visualization, and features, including library panels, 
that you can build once and reuse on multiple dashboards, a Prometheus metric browser, and a new state timeline and status history visualization. Uh, they now give you the ability to query data now with JSON data source plugins, which allows you to query Redis, SAP, Salesforce, ServiceNow, or Jira, all directly from inside of Grafana. Uh, you can now use Grafana API keys to publish your dashboards to give programmatic access to your Grafana workspace. Uh, they've enabled SSO via SAML2 integrations like CyberArk, Okta, OneLogin, etc. And all calls managed Grafana are now captured in CloudTrail, so you can do all your auditing and all your security people happy. And then available now in 10 regions with still more coming later this year. So... Nice. Uh, improvements to Grafana. This is something you're waiting for going uh, wide and generally available. It's now available for you to go try out and use it. I want to stick that in front of Jira for sure. That sounds like fun. Grab some querying Jira with uh, interesting with, uh, metrics. Yeah. yeah. It'll be a lot of fun. Especially considering how bad the Jira um, you know, Jira plugin reporting is. The reporting? <laughs> yeah, it's so it's so restrictive. It's like you you know it's a broken reporting tool when you start. Uh, you start futzing with where you stick data in what field, in the wrong fields, or the way you structure your your tickets and everything, just so that reporting can possibly get you what you need. Yeah, you know it's a bad day too when people start getting mad when you want to change data to fields and labels because it's going to break you know massive yeah. amounts of people in this in the schema. You're like, okay, well, I but I need the flexibility. Yeah, you can't have it. You have to, everyone has to be the same. Uh, it's always a rough rough situation. Well, moving on to Google Cloud, uh, they were late this week, but they had two announcements that uh, they wanted to share with you. First of all, uh, Google Cloud for Postgres now supports Linux huge pages by default. Uh, this was something you could do before, but you had to go figure out how to turn it on through the psql commands. Uh, and if your instance has more than two gigs of RAM, then it will automatically use Linux huge pages. For those of you who don't know who Linux huge pages are, is uh, basically means you'll have two megabit pages in memory versus the default four kilobytes pages. Uh, and this has, of course, as many benefits like improved memory usage uh, as well as improved performance uh, because DB is dealing with less data or more data at one time that they can put through the buffers, which is always helpful. Uh, so, yeah, you know, welcome to, you know, early 2000s. Google, I appreciate you uh, getting this for us by default. Uh, you know, there you go. That's <laughs> all I can say. It's actually quite an overhead. I, it's, it's, you know, for a single tenant turning the other on, it's probably going to make very little difference. Almost, almost unnoticeable performance difference, and saying that you're going to have more memory available to use because you're using a sm- larger pages and fewer of them, um, maybe a tiny amount. But mostly, I think the the main benefit for this change is um, is going to be shared tenancy systems because it, with virtualization, every time there's a context switch between uh, different tenants on a CPU, you have to throw away that entire cache, reload it. The smaller the smaller that cache is, the the uh, the, the faster that's going to be, and so the, the better overall performance you'll you'll get from the the system. And so I think it's it's probably more about their 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 overall performance than it is about an individual having uh, slightly more, you know, slightly faster response times. Yeah, I don't know. Some really big Postgres databases, you maybe get something, but mm. um, yeah, yeah. Your most of your small instance sizes, <laughs> you're not going to get much of a benefit. So, all right. Uh, the last one, of course, you know, for anybody who's using serverless apps, uh, you know, the bane of your existence is the dreaded cold start. Uh, and so Google Functions this week is giving you some new improvements for cold starts. Uh, and Google says uh, here in this article that over the last year, they have shipped many enhancements, including new runtimes, new regions, and enhanced user and developer experiences with fine-grained security and cost and scaling controls. Uh, but as you expand these capabilities, the startup tax, aka cold starts, can take a few seconds to start up and scale requests. So basically what Google's saying here, if I were to summarize this, is 
we put too many b- things in the boat and the boat is sinking. <laughs> and so now we need to make it faster. Uh, and so that's what they've done for you. Uh, to address this, Google is giving you the ability to specify a minimum number of instances of your application to keep online during periods of low demand. And this new feature can help improve performance for your serverless applications workloads, minimizing your cold start. Uh, no mention, of course, of the cost of these minimum instances, uh, but like in the world of, G- of uh, AWS, uh, they do charge you some minimum fee for each uh, instance you want to keep cold, or sorry, warm, and then uh, you pay that on a monthly basis in addition to the execution time. So we don't know what that's going to look like for Google yet. It's because it's pre-GA. It doesn't have a price to it, so you get to use this for free uh, for a period of time until that gets generally available, and then you'll start paying for it. So we'll keep an eye on that, what it's going to cost. But uh, you know, if you've been dreading the cold start problems like Google Functions, they've got this for you this week. I always love the, the flip-flop between serverless and serverful. Yeah, let's talk about a database with huge pages, and then let's talk about no server <laughs> with no memory, and we'll, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of fun. What do you think about that dichotomy there? In a way, it's kind of weird that they architect this in this way, and they, and they add this functionality to what is actually supposed to be a serverless implementation. I, I would, if, if you know, Previously, I would have designed this differently. I would have had a small container system running somewhere doing doing the job until it we needed to burst into the serverless realm so it's it's just it's weird that um that they're offering this the way they are and it's, it's sort of changing the the very nature of the intent of the service rather than just telling people to architect their solution using the, the other existing tools i must feel like we need to change the term serverless to something else because what like this is still great because i don't have to patch those instances. I don't have to manage the operating system or anything like that. So still serverless, even though there's servers, but I don't know, maybe it should be patchless or something. Yeah. It's, it's like a billing model more than anything, isn't it? It's like a consumption-based billing rather than time-based, I guess. Yeah. I mean, there's servers behind everything, so nothing serverless. <laughs> Just how exposed are you to it? And to me, that I think the level of exposure where it's no longer serverless is if I have to patch it. For listeners of the CloudPod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, JumpCloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. Enabling JumpCloud Zero Trust Solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try JumpCloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. All right, well, let's move on to Azure. Uh, they had no announcements this week, uh, but you know that means there's a vacuum I had to fill for Azure, and they <laughs> luckily gave it to me with a security vulnerability that was pretty serious. And so we we're going to talk about the Chaos DB vulnerability f- discovered by Wiz. Uh, so you know, basically, the first article that I, I summarized here was from uh, I think Business Insider or one of those publications. Uh, but basically, Microsoft reportedly warned thousands of customers of their cloud computing Cosmos database, uh, including large enterprises, uh, that intruders could have had the ability to read, change, or even delete their main database. Uh, the vulnerability is in the Microsoft, of course, Cosmos DB, and a research team discovered that it was able to access keys that control access databases by thousands of their companies. Uh, Wiz CTO Amy Lutwak is the former CTO of Microsoft Cloud Security Group, so she clearly knew where to go to find all the problems. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
And as Microsoft apparently couldn't change the keys themselves, they had to email you, the customer, to get that done. So you, if you were impacted, you did get a customer email with this. Uh, Microsoft reportedly paid uh, $40,000 to Wiz, which thank God that you know Wiz was okay with that because that seemed cheap to me for what this was. <laughs> I would have paid more. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm sure they could have found people in the black web who would have paid a lot more than 40000 for this. I mean, how does that even work? Is there like just a fixed amount that they agree to pay for each flaw? And- well, so typically they're like through a bug bounty program. And so when yeah. you do bug bounties, you, you know, you have some type of standard guidance, but then uh, the extraordinary security things you find, you typically they have special pricing and things they can do. Because, you know, the, the, what they're competing against is people who are selling, you know, exploits to the dark web. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, third country, you know, third country states that want, you know, that type of vulnerability to go get data. Um, but overall, you know, it's, you know, it just seems like a really low price for how bad this could have been. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally. Uh, I just, yeah, I was curious about that because it's, it's, then all of a sudden, you, if you're negotiating that price, it sort of feels like it starts going from bounty to extortion. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I, I think it's why they have guidelines, but I, you know, there's still things that Microsoft can do to kind of go above and beyond. And maybe there are things that were negotiated that you just don't know. Uh, Microsoft indicates there was no evidence of external entities outside of the researcher from Wiz who had access to primary read write keys. Uh, and Wiz has named this the KSDB vulnerability. Uh, and they allegedly reported to Microsoft on August 9th, and, or sorry, they found it on August 9th and reported it to Microsoft on August 12th. Uh, and the flaw is in the Jupyter Notebook capability of Cosmos DB. So then Wiz uh, wrote a pretty lengthy blog post, uh, which uh, you know highlights how they, what they did and what they found. And so I read through this, and I summarize this as well. Uh, basically, they created a loophole allowing any user to download, delete, or manipulate a massive collection of commercial databases. Uh, by a new feature, which was enabled by default in February 2021 for allowing Jupyter Jupyter Notebooks to visualize cloud Cosmos DB data, Uh, but a series of misconfigurations in the notebook feature opened up a new attack vector. Uh, In short, the notebook container allowed for a privileged escalation into their customer notebook, and as a result, an attacker could gain access to a customer's Cosmos DB primary keys and other highly sensitive secrets, such as notebook blob storage access tokens. So not only did they get your your Cosmos DB, they also got your blob storage behind your Cosmos DB too, which is great. Uh, Once you had the Cosmos DB secrets, Wiz showed how they leveraged those keys to get full admin access to all the data stored in Cosmos DB. By exfiltrating the keys, they also got long-term access to the customer asset and data, controlling Cosmos DB directly from the internet with full read-write-delete permissions. Uh, Wiz reported that Microsoft Security Team took immediate action to address the problem. And they had not seen security team move so fast before. They'd, they had disabled the notebook feature within 48 hours after the report, and it apparently is still turned off pending a full security redesign. Wiz reports that Microsoft notified over 30% of their Cosmos DB customers that they needed to manually rotate their access keys. However, Wiz believes many more Cosmos DB customers may have been at risk. Uh, every Cosmos DB account that uses the notebook feature or that was created after January 21st is potentially at risk. And starting in February, all new Cosmos DB customers had that feature enabled by default. Uh, if you didn't use the feature, though, within the first three days, it was disabled automatically for you, but that was a three-day window that someone could access your data in Cosmos DB on Create. So there you go. That's uh, that's pretty horrible. <laughs> Not good. Could have been so much worse. Not good. Yeah, could have been so much worse. The, the story could have been you know, health data. It could have been financial data, critical you know, intellectual property, lists of customers, uh, you know, considering the, the deals the cloud companies are doing with, with uh, national security agencies. Uh, yeah, just uh, I think they got off very lightly <laughs> with 40k. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I I just reading through this and as you go through the Wiz article, and the, we're linking to both the the Business Week article and the, as well as the Wiz blog post. But uh, you know, read through this. It's you know, it, it definitely 
you know, it's one of those exploits where, exploits where you're just like, yeah, this could have been really bad. <laughs> and the fact that it wasn't worse is just a testament to the fact that there was a good researcher who found this versus a bad one. Mm. Yep. All right. Uh, I mean, how do you guys feel about them just enabling this by default, though? Like that, that seems like that's the part that I'm kind of miffed about the whole thing. It's like, okay, it's one thing if you have a feature and then you enable the feature and that feature then has a vulnerability. You, you were sort of involved in the choice versus this where they're just turning it on by default. Like, what is your guys' thought on that? Yeah, especially Jupiter, which is obviously for very specific use cases, um, a subset of use cases for Cosmos. Uh, I just don't know why they would enable that by default. Like, how much? How much are you helping companies who want it enabled by enabling it by default? I mean, I mean, even if I okay, so I'm I am inter- I am a data scientist and I am interested in using Cosmos as my backend and I want to use Jupyter notebooks, like. You know how how real is it going to be for me within three days that I can actually use the Jupyter notebook to do what I want to do with the Cosmos dataset that I just imported when I'm just learning a tool? Like it, like it's a very niche window where that you know that three day window and a new Cosmos DB instance, and I'm assuming that you know these things, all these uh, all these things align. Like it's just such a weird edge case feature. I don't. I'm not really sure who it was designed for. I, I would love to understand more of the product brief on that one. Yeah. Oh, I guess it, it's just made to make make people's lives easier. And and making engineers' lives easier is something that all the hyperscalers have spent a lot of effort doing over the past few years. But I, th- I think features get added to services all the time, and they're normally included in the scope of existing IAM controls, and that's actually been a complaint of AWS as well. You know, they'll, they'll deploy a new feature, and there's no new permission for it. All, all of a sudden, your users can do this thing without having to explicitly allow it. So I, I think I, I don't hold it against them for enabling it. It's it's probably a more seamless developer experience. It's obviously they wouldn't have done it if they thought there was a, a defect in their implementation. I think we'll probably have to spend a lot of time going back and figuring out exactly how the error happened and exactly why there was such lack of security around you know stealing data from other containers on the same host. Yeah, I think the, the default, right, is enable as much as you can by default until you find out why you shouldn't. So, you know, example would be Amazon's regions. All regions were obviously available to every account by default yep. until that until that created a pain point for customers and then they went a different direction with it. Yeah. They, they didn't actually ever really fix that problem because the, the complaint was that I want to be able to turn off regions in, you know, because I don't need them. Uh, and so what they did was they basically gave you some weird API endpoint control, which sort of works. And then they basically said, "Well, we just won't. We won't just enable new regions for you by default. Uh, but once you enable it, you can't turn it off." Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, it was definitely a, a band aid, not not a rearchitecture. Yeah. So I, yeah, you know, I hear you again. I, I'm still baffled by the three day thing because I'm like, okay, so I know this thing is supposed to have this by default, but now you know, I, I spun up today because you know. Or late on Friday, because that's where you know, Labor Day weekend. I'm going to spin up on Friday, and then by Tuesday, it's been three days and it's been disabled. And the feature that I thought should be there should, isn't there. And then now I have to go to Azure documentation and figure out how to re-enable the feature. Which you know, if you've ever been in Azure documentation, I'm sure that's you know, it's awful. Though <laughs> so they're just you know, again, it's you turned it on for a very arbitrary amount of time for a reason, and I just I wish I understood what that reason was. No reason. You probably find there's some online training. You could sign up to do, you know, free free Cosmos DB with Jupyter oh, that, training on, online someplace, and it was it, it was designed that way to be seamless for, for whatever whatever that use case was. I mean, that, that's my guess. 
Yeah. yeah. Sign for an edge case, though. It's always bad. All right. <laughs> well, enough about uh, Chaos DB. If you had a Cosmos DB notification, uh, or even if you didn't have one, uh, you know, Wiz does recommend that you rotate your keys. Uh, you know, they got paid for this vulnerability. Microsoft only paid them 40 grand. So, you know, maybe Microsoft doesn't think it's as important as we do, but uh, I would recommend rotating them. <laughs> if you haven't done it already, uh, go find the documentation on how to rotate your keys and take care of that. Uh, just in case. Just, you know, just, just makes you sleep better at night at the end of the day. All right, Peter, uh, take us the lightning round. All right. AWS Systems Manager now enables additional application management capabilities. Do you do systems or do you do applications? Will you just make up your mind, Systems Manager? Just pick one. It's getting so complex. I need Systems Manager, Systems Manager. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> I, I like that they started to drop the system, system, uh, sorry, simple Systems Manager from the name of some of these products because it doesn't feel so simple anymore. Does not. AWS Copilot, on the other hand, now supports pub sub architectures. Every pilot supports pubs. It's just it's just the nature of the beast. They're at the pub. They're getting a beer as long as it's after the flight. Hopefully, it's after the flight. I prefer Frank Lloyd Wright architectures personally, but whatever, pub sub will do. <laughs> right, little A frame. Amazon VPC announces new routing enhancements to make it easy to deploy virtual appliances between subnets in a VPC. This sounds familiar. This is about the appliances, though. So, you know, you got you to have the announcement first one until you get the first one out there and say, oh, we do this bump on the wire thing. And then we do another announcement to say we do we support appliances. And then they can, you know, say, well, we have two announcements this week versus just yeah. one. So, well done, marketing. Isn't that appliance just a server you don't have access to? Yeah, really. <laughs> True. I remember uh, really dealing with a HipChat appliance back in the day. Uh, and that was a server that I desperately didn't want access to because every time I got into it, I realized what the Rube Goldberg machine that was. <laughs> yeah, you can only hope that they didn't actually run their SASOs the same way. Uh, I mean, that's maybe why it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you ever wonder why NetApp wasn't was network appliance and not storage appliance? Nope, never asked that question. <laughs> there you go. Amazon Aurora supports Postgres 13. Lucky number 13. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a superstitious type. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait for 14. I'm not going to upgrade to 13. Just skip that one. And not worth playing those games. I missed Jonathan. We both went for the superstitious angle. I said unlucky uh, for some. Oh, unlucky for some? Yep. Uh, introducing... Dynamic partitioning in Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose. Isn't it dynamic? Yes. <laughs> I got nothing for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wish I killed that one. If you sing it, you win. <laughs> I, I don't even. What would I sing? I don't. I, I, is this a song I'm just stumbling into? I didn't. Like, know. isn't it romantic? Oh, oh like, isn't it romantic? Yeah, okay. I can see it. I just. But since you didn't sing it, Frank Lloyd Wright wins it. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Obscure reference for the win. <laughs> I gave you a chance, Justin. It's all right. I wasn't going to win on that. Only like, I'm not, it's not worth it. It's not once, worth it. Once you heard my singing voice, you would have still taken the point away. So it's fine. <laughs> this is a voice made for podcasting, not for singing. Trust me. All right. Well, uh, you know, after record time, uh, we basically have the storage day coming up. So we have lots of announcements to talk about next week from AWS Storage Day. But there are things coming up still in the world of cloud. Uh, Azure has announced a data governance event on September 28th. If you're into all things data governance, uh, you can enjoy that. Uh, I will not be here. So, uh, Louis Jonathan, you're going to have to host that week. 
Uh, I won't be here. <laughs> SNCConf is coming up October 5th through 7th. Uh, KubeCon, October 11th to the 15th. And then Google Cloud Next, uh, of course, October 12th to the 14th. HashiConf is coming up after that, October 19th to the 22nd. And then announcing the Government and Education Summit, November 3rd through the 4th for Google Ooh. Cloud. So if you're in the government or education space, Google has a special event for you November 3rd through 4th. And then, of course, reInvent if it happens in person in Vegas, November 29th through December 3rd, or virtual. We're not sure yet. We'll see how that works out. Uh, but COVID numbers are not looking great, so I'm going to say probably a pass. We'll find out. And then we got Moo. We got Moo coming. Moo? What's Moo? That's the new variant. Oh, I, I haven't kept track. I just knew Delta was the thing. A new variant that may be able to completely evade the vaccines. It'd be more, it'd be more interesting if it could, uh, you know, eat cows. Like it's, that's what's called the moon variant. Just attacks cows. All right. Well, that is it for another fantastic week in the cloud. We will see you next week. See you later. Later. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. Cloud Pod.